Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. So good to see each of you here today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about where I was last week. I never enjoy missing, but last week was a worthy cause. Tyler and I were in Montana setting up a partnership with the uh, church planting of the Montana Convention there and um, meeting pastors and church planters and their spouses across the state looking at locations and the things that God is doing there and how we as a church can partner with them there. We're looking forward to the years to come where we can invest in sending the gospel to the people of Montana. It's a beautiful state. Uh, The people are very welcoming. And um, we had a great time, and I'm looking forward in the weeks and months to come to introducing that partnership more to you to talk about how each of us can be involved in sending the gospel to the people of Montana through planting churches. Well, let's go to Genesis 29 today. I want us to look at Jacob's journey, lessons of grace and blessing. And we're going to walk through Genesis 29 and 30 today. Due to time constraints, I'm going to not read the text as I typically would. I'll read portions of it and point it out, but we're going to walk through it as we walk through the message today. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Do you know where you are with God today? Do you know where you are with God today? Nothing is more important than for us, for anyone to know where they are with God, to know that he is working, to know how he is working, to be able to identify that and respond to that appropriately in our life. But you see, neglecting or ignoring God, as we so often do, can leave us exposed to things like the abuse, the deception, and even the destruction that sin wants to wreak havoc in our life by doing. And so often, It's transpiring even right under our noses, but unbeknownst to us in what's going on. And so as we walk through this journey today, we're going to look at the life of Jacob in these chapters and learn some lessons from his life that are true of God that apply for our life today. Go with me to Genesis chapter 29, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Verse one. This is where we begin. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people 
of the east. Now, let me pause for a moment and remind us of something. Do you remember why Jacob had to go on his journey? If you go back to the chapters immediately preceding, here's what you would learn about why Jacob was on a journey. To find a wife, yes, his mother and father had sent him to go and find a wife from their people. To not take a wife from the people of the land in which they lived, but from the people, rather, of their family land. But that's not the only reason that Jacob was on a journey. As a matter of fact, that was the cloud, that was the cover of the reasoning he was sent to find a wife because his brother wanted to kill him and his mother knew this was the only way to save his life and so she convinced his father Isaac to send him and Isaac did you see Jacob was on a journey because he was running from his past but God was with him all Along. It's interesting that phrase there, Jacob went on his journey. In the Hebrew, literally means he lifted up his feet. You go, oh, well, he's marching in place. No, that phrase is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to denote a presence or a being with by God Himself. So even though Jacob in his own heart and mind and what he was doing was very aware of the fact that he was running from the reality of his past, it doesn't negate the fact that God was with him all along the way. Jacob's running from his past and God's running right alongside with him. You see, but though God is with him, Jacob will never enjoy God's blessing. Why? Because his sin continues to pervert God's blessing in his life. And you see, the importance of understanding where you are with God really cannot be overstated. Regardless of where you've come from, what you've come out of, where you are, where you're headed, and why it is that you experience all the things that you do. Understanding your life journey begins by recognizing where you are with God and what he is doing in you. You see, when God saves us by grace through faith, he removes sin's effect from us. He brings us from death to life, the ultimate effect of sin. But addressing sin's effects in our life demand that we trust God and experience his redeeming power within us. And the gospel reminds us that our sinful past is not what determines the final word of our future. But as long as you fail to recognize God's blessing and and to trust him, you're destined to repeat sin's misery and to know little of his power. Listen, friends, here's a key to understanding our journey today. Christians live by promises not explanations, because we walk by faith, not by sight. We live by promises, not explanations. That ought to be helpful for us when we're demanding to know why from God, and he's given us a promise to lead us forth. He's calling us to a life of faith and not a life 
of sight. And we're going to learn that God's grace is sufficient to strengthen and to sustain us as we walk by faith in his promises. But we must trust to obey him. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Sin perverts God's blessing in every way, in every shape, in every manner, to every depth and degree in our life. But by grace, God produces Christ's likeness in us when by faith we trust to obey him. And that's our hope today. Today we're going to look at Jacob's journey in chapters 29 and 30. And we're going to trace it through three settings. Setting number one will be a bride's. Yes, I understand that's awkward. But the story's awkward, so I need to just capture that. The second will be a brood. We're going to see how his family develops. And the third will be a bartering. And through these three settings, we'll learn the lessons of God's grace and God's blessing. Three lessons I want us to see that we must learn to live by faith and obedience to God's promises. And so in Genesis 29-2, we begin. Jacob comes to a well, and it tells us that there are several shepherds that are waiting there with their sheep near the well, and they're waiting on other shepherds to bring their flocks as well. So even though there are some shepherds there and it's surrounded by sheep, they're waiting on more. And he asks them, do you know a man by the name of Laban? That's my mother's brother, and that's who I've come to help me find a wife. And they point to this young girl who's coming towards the well. Her name is Rachel. And they say, yes, that's actually his daughter coming now. She was a shepherdess. And she was bringing her uh, sheep and her flock to the well to be watered as well. And Jacob says to the shepherds, why are you waiting? Why don't you just take the stone off and go ahead and water the sheep? And they go, but we can't. Because the stone is so heavy, it takes very many of us to move it. And so we're waiting on them. But in that uncanny, untamed, masculine way, when Jacob saw Rachel, single-handedly, it was his moment of fame. The Bible says he stood up and he moved that stone by himself. And we shouldn't miss the near miraculous element of the writer's record here. He rolls the stone by himself and he waters her flock. And then it says that he kisses her and he welcomes her and he weeps and he tells her all about why he is there. And, and once he finishes, she runs and gets her father and tells him everything that Jacob has just said to her. And Laban comes out to greet Jacob. And, and Jacob tells Laban the reason he's come. And Laban recognizes him as his own relatives. So he welcomes him in and it tells us that Jacob goes to live with Laban and his family. And then after about a month, Laban comes to Jacob and he discusses his wages with him. He says to him, why should you live and work for me for nothing? Tell me what wage you deserve and I shall pay it to you. Well, Jacob had noticed his two daughters and he loved Rachel. That had never left his heart since he had moved the big stone 
and he offers to be able to marry her for seven years of service to Laban. And Laban agreed. And here's what the text says about this in Jacob's heart and eyes. Those seven years seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. It tells us that for seven years, Jacob levitated because of his love. It was just like a few days. Man, he was so in love, he had moved that stone and how could she possibly not recognize the sheer brute force of him by moving that stone all by himself. And so when the time came for marriage, Father Laban held a feast and man, they partied. But it tells us that instead of giving Rachel, he gave Leah, his older daughter, And then it tells us something strange. And I'll be honest with you. There's things about scripture I don't understand. And here's one that goes right up to the top. The next morning, Jacob realized what had happened. Can we all just take a moment and recognize somewhat of the absurdity of this? And I'm not just pointing this out for humor's sake, though there's plenty of that here. Why? Did Jacob not realize that it was Leah instead of Rachel until the next morning? So he goes to Laban and he asks. And Laban says, I couldn't give my younger daughter first. That's not the way we do it here. I had to give my older daughter. And I'll be honest with you, we don't know the whole conversation that transpired here, but we know Jacob was not happy. For the depth of his love for Rachel fueled the anger of his disdain for Laban in giving him Leah. And Laban said to Jacob, finish this ceremony. You know, the week of your uh, um, coming together. And at the end of that week, I will give you Rachel for seven more years. You know, it's interesting to me because it said that he, those seven years seemed but a few days because of the love that he had for her. And we, we can move through this quickly as a narrative and, and, and forget the, the chronology of what's transpiring here. This didn't happen over a couple of days. It happened over seven plus years. But friends, here's what we're going to begin to see, that, that Jacob so loved himself, he didn't really know love. And especially not how to love. You see, Jacob got hoodwinked by Laban. Hoodwinked is a technical term. It means you lost, right? And the man who had made his life by swindling got swindled. What Laban did was not right. But one person's sin is never justification to excuse our own. Jacob was so overcome by his own agenda, he didn't bother to consult God or even consider Leah, who's here the whole time. She knows what's going on. Rather, he did what he'd always done. He wanted and swindled a deal to get it. He saw Rachel with his eyes. And for him, that sealed the deal. And anything different that anybody, God included, wanted for him wasn't good enough for him. 
One commentator contrasting Jacob looking for a wife against Abraham's servant taking a wife for Isaac, if you'll remember that, says this, the piety of Abraham's servant starkly contrasts with the action and the character of Jacob. When Abraham's servant discovered Rebekah's identity, his first response was to worship the Lord. But here, Jacob's first response was to flex his muscle, was to prove his capacity to serve Laban's house, to be worthy of what he wanted. You see, everything about the situation is what Jacob could accomplish. And listen to me, the wage that he had earned. That'll be critical to us. As a matter of fact, that word will form the bookends of this whole narrative today. Honoring God in marriage and even cherishing his wife was never the point for Jacob. Jacob had made his life by swindling to make the deal, to get what he wanted, and he wasn't gonna allow this one to go unnoticed. You see, the first lesson of grace that we learn here, friends, is the lesson of contentment. The lesson of contentment. Jacob wasn't satisfied with anything because he neglected God in everything. He wasn't satisfied with anything because he neglected God in anything. He failed the first lesson of grace as we all have because he failed to recognize God. He failed to consider his situation in life in light of God's call on his life. He already knew that God had revealed himself to him that he would bless him so that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. He had already had that dream, remember, when he set up the rock and he, he named that place because God had visited him here. He knew, but he didn't let that bother him when he had his own agenda. He let the eyes and the pride of his life drive him. He neglected God's presence so that he could reject God's work in his life in order to accomplish his own. You see, friends, as long as God is no more than an option in life, there will never be contentment with life. Living in a constant awareness and dependence on God, that is the key to contentment with life. Hebrews 13.5 tells us this, be content with what you have for he has said, speaking of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, we must learn to trust this that the presence of God in our life is abundantly greater and more than all the power and riches of this world. When Jesus is near, we find contentment by his presence. It doesn't mean our situation changes. It doesn't, need that, it doesn't mean that every need that we have automatically vanishes. But contentment comes as we look to God, to his will, to his glory and his way, and we trust his promise in Jesus to us. It may be most important for us today because we've all failed the lesson of contentment is to remember that contentment must be learned. 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13 says this. Paul's writing, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's interesting how that verse actually comes to us in the context and in the light of accomplishing what God places before us that may or may not be what's on our agenda for us, but to recognize that when we trust in him, it will be his work that brings his glory in and through us. You see, learning contentment is the only way to kill envy. Learning contentment is the only way to kill sinful ambition. Learning contentment is the only way to kill covetousness. And the key to perseverance is contentment because it manifests the sufficiency of God's grace and it demonstrates his faithfulness within us. That's what contentment says. Contentment says this, that God, I will trust your promises when I have no idea what the answer to my question is. I will trust your promises when I see no resolution or even a direction to the situation or the circumstances of my life. I will be content because you have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even in the moments when I don't feel you as close as I want you, when I don't sense that everything that I need is coming from you, I'll rest in this promise that you will never leave me nor forsake me. And I'll believe that where I am not content in my life, that your grace will be sufficient to teach me contentment by your close presence. You see, learning contentment means learning to lean on Jesus at all times for the strength that always surpasses the demand, whatever the situation, and trust him to obey It's not based on what we can accomplish or what we desire. God's grace produces contentment in us to live by faith in the promises, not demanding the explanations when we pursue a closer presence of Jesus. Let me ask you this. Is there any area in your life where you're dissatisfied where you're disgruntled, where you're discontent today. You say, but I'm not discontent with God. I'm not disgruntled with God. I didn't ask if you're disgruntled or discontent with God. You see, here's what we've learned in the Christian life. We've learned how to clean up and divide, partition out, you might say, our disgruntlements and our disfavor, and we blame them on every other one thing, circumstance, or otherwise, so that we can go before God and go, I'm not mad at you, God, but I am a burning, raging fire with all these things in the world. Now, I'm just asking if you're disgruntled, dissatisfied, or discontent with your life in some manner, to some measure, in some area, degree, or form. At the end of the day, friends, that's where you are with God. That's where you are with God. 
And until you come to a place where you listen to his promise and you tell him that, Lord, I will trust what you've said to me. Regardless of what I see, what I want, what I think, or otherwise. You will not learn contentment because God is not an option. And as is too often the case, one failed misery always leads to another. In verse 31 of Genesis 29 All the way through chapter 30, verse 22, it introduces Jacob's children to us. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because we're beginning to see his family. He's taken two wives now. I mean, tell me this, friends. Tell me country music is not the most biblical music there is. This story right here, one week, two wives. That's a country song right there. Am I right? Oh, I know, it's hard for some of you to confess, but it's true. One week, two wives, and not even two wives in harmony, but from the very beginning, division. You see, it's Jacob's children who will become the heads of the tribes of Israel. We're seeing a nation form, and we're seeing how that nation Let me tell you this, when you get into the Exodus and you see all the whining and the bickering and the disbelief of the people of God in the nation of Israel, remember their daddy. Remember their daddy. Here are the names that are given to us in this chapter. Reuben will be the first and he will be born to Leah. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. Now, Leah will birth four of them. Her concubine will birth two of them. In the midst of that, Rachel will be able to get on the scoreboard and birth two. And then her concubine will also birth two. And I say scoreboard very seriously because remember, we're laboring for wages. And in the hearts of these women, this is a competition that's driving them, friends. But instead of a celebration, which shouldn't the names of our children be that? Their names are recorded amidst tension and apprehension, by competition, by striving for a love, by fueling enemy. Look at the meanings of these names. I mean, as you walk through, the, the meanings of these names are, are and, and you'll find them in the footnotes of your Bible. The, the meanings are, are full of tension and contention, competition. There's no love lost between Leah and Rachel. There's, there's none whatsoever. And the only reason they offer their concubines is to get ahead. If I have more, he'll love me more. This is the preeminent striving after love and acceptance by two women, Leah of whom her husband, the day after their marriage night, went to his father-in-law to complain about her. You want to crush somebody? Oh, it's you. Desperately trying to get the attention of one man who couldn't be distracted by his love for self. Let that sink in. You see, friends, fear of missing out is a disorder 
has been driving people from the very beginning. Fear rules Jacob's whole life. And it becomes a raging fire that burns through his whole family. That's what we're seeing here. We're told that Rachel loved Jacob more than Leah. Verse 31 tells us this. And God saw this. Verse 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. That's what started the childbearing in their family. Hatred of the husband that the Lord saw. You see, Jacob hated Leah not because of Leah. Now, now, granted, Leah didn't understand this. Why? Because this is, you, you don't understand things like this. He didn't hate Leah because of Leah. He hated Leah because of what she represented. The man who made his life by swindling got swindled. And she was the prize of his loss. This reality created a cold, dark, lonely place that forced Leah to live her whole life trying to, hear me, birth Jacob's love. But to no avail. Didn't matter how many kids she had. Didn't matter how many times she offered her concubine. She still had to barter for a love she never knew. But Leah wouldn't be the only one that was bruised and abused by Jacob's love. When Rachel was unable to conceive, she became so overwhelmed by her insecurity with that that she demands from Jacob what he is unable to swindle. And he snaps. She says, give me a child. And he says, woman, do you think I am God? Well, you do. Why wouldn't we? Right? I mean, if we're just talking about the things that sometimes don't get put into words. The same fear that caused Jacob to hate Leah over a deal where he was outswindled would later find its expression in despising Rachel over a demand he could not satisfy. One he hated, just wanted his love. And for the one he loved, he was unable to provide what she demanded. Here's the fact. Jacob's hate towards Leah and his anger towards Rachel were not about either one of them at all. They were both fueled by how it was he felt about Himself. And listen to me, friends. The life built on pride always self destructs. Always. When love for self is sourced in self, it can only last as long as fleeting pleasure, satisfaction, or control remains. Then self love becomes self loathing. Self-care becomes self-destruction that harms not only the self, but all who are near to self. You see, life has a way of teaching how not in control we really are. And our problems reveal where our pride rules. And this is the second lesson of grace. 
It is the lesson of humility, friends. Jacob didn't trust himself because inside he knew who he really was, untrustworthy. Pride bruised his wives with insecurity by the absence of love and by forcing them to compete with one another for his love. And all of his children were born of an envious striving and named for hopeless gain. What a legacy. His burning pride singed his whole family and he was blind and powerless to stop it. Why? Because of his own pride. And friends, crucifixion is the only cure for pride. You must kill it or it will be killing you and all who are near you. You see, humility is a declaration of war on oneself to kill sin where it rules and where pride remains in us so that the cleansing power of grace can redeem us and transform us into Jesus's likeness. Pride destroys, humility brings honor. Pride sets us opposed to God. Humility brings grace from him upon us. And the only way to kill pride is to crucify it and to enthrone Jesus over our whole life. You see, every point of pride in self is the likely source of harm to others. Let me dial that in a little more. Every point of pride in self, everything that you are most proud of about you in your life becomes the most likely source by which you will harm others. Everything about your life where you take confidence in yourself becomes the most likely source of harm to others. You're like, well, should we not be proud of anything? Should we not take confidence in the the things that we're able to do? Friends, when you source your strength in yourself, you're sparking a fire to burn others. It doesn't mean there should be no confidence in self, but it means our ultimate confidence must rest only in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 18, 12 tells us, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. There is no inkling of pride or confidence in self that does not hold the potential to become a raging fury that burns any who are near you. And that's what happened to Jacob. He had every opportunity to bless other people. He was so immensely blessed, but he didn't give God credit for anything because he neglected him in everything. First Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If Jacob had just looked at his life, He could have seen one stumble after the other. And humility would have caused him to ask just the smallest amount. Maybe I'm making a wrong decision here. Maybe something is not as it should be. But all he wanted to do was to get the two bickering women in his life to shut up and leave him alone. So he could do what he wanted to do. He gave no regard to either one of them, even though he claimed to love one of them. He didn't love Rachel. He loved what Rachel could do for him. He loved the promise of her beauty for his life. 
not the presence of her being. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, friends, pride will fight to disrupt humility at every point in your life. At its invitation, where you are invited to take pride in self and to trust in self. At its situation and what it creates. At its justification and how it is that you justify your own wages, your own worthiness. At its initiation when it comes to you. But it cannot thwart God's promise for you. No matter how humble and no matter how much you exercise humility when God's promise comes, pride will not overcome it as long as we remain humble to God as, John, as James tells us and trust him to bring honor in his way to us. When we humble ourselves and trust in Jesus, his redeeming power is at work in us. And only humility invites the cleansing power of the gospel to purge us by Holy Spirit conviction working within us, by the word illuminating counsel that he brings to us to bring light to the dark corners of our life that we've kept hidden from God and to bring godly wisdom for faithful walking in God's will. You see, friends, the more you pursue Jesus, the more powerful, the more pervasive, and the more promising humility becomes in your heart and mind, not because of what you can do or have done, but because of what Jesus is doing in you, and you trust all that he says. You trust where he leads, and you trust how he is working because of his Holy Spirit and his word in you. God's grace always produces greater humility when we pursue a closer presence of Jesus. Be careful. Be careful that you do not twist the promises of God to bring about your accomplishments your will and do it in your way but rather trusting the promise of God to be content and humble until he brings his will in his way about in your life finally the third lesson second part of chapter 30 Jacob's prosperity he asked Laban to let him leave and of course as long as he remains, his pride is stifled, right? Because he's still living under his father-in-law's house. How can a man excel that way? But Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave because, quite frankly, he's been good for profit. He's helped the bottom line. So again, two swindlers face off. One, he's got a score to settle. He has no intention of getting even, only visions of grandeur to get Ahead. And so Laban comes to him, and you know what he asks again? Name your wages. Name your wages. Jacob sets the terms for growing the herd and keeping the portion. Let every speckled, spotted, and any lamb or goat that is not pure white, pure bread, let me take them, and I'll grow them from there. And Laban agrees to terms. But immediately Laban tells his son, take every speckled and spotted goat and lamb out of the herd and take them away from here. So it's only perfectly unspotted, pure white that he has. And so Jacob takes them 
and he sets up this arrangement. And I have, I don't know all the biology and genetics of how you breed goats and lambs and all those kinds of things. But as he did it, he began to ridiculously create from perfectly single color lambs and goats, speckled, spotted, and many other colors of goats. And the Bible tells us that it was crazy how productive he really was. It sounded honest and fair, except for Jacob manipulated his strategy in order to gain an advantage. One swindler swindling against another. You see, one thing about a swindler, he always waits and he's never satisfied until his revenge for his last loss gets him ahead. But while the flock swelled by accomplishment, Jacob's heart was shrinking and atrophying to the things of God. His pride allowed enough other to remain to avoid exposure, but it shrunk his capacity for any consideration of others. You see, friends, the third lesson of grace is the lesson of gratitude and generosity. Jacob was a self-made man who was still making himself. And the more he failed in his family, the more he worked to salve it by his successes. Pride fueled his greed to scheme and not just get even, but to get ahead. He had to make back his lost wage from Laban's win. Never mind his lost calculation, not being in things, but rather in the way he regarded people. You see, the last wage that Jacob was trying to make up was the complete dissatisfaction with not one, but two daughters of Laban. And you say, well, why would he think that way? Because he was so consumed with one individual himself that he would destroy not one woman, but two and condemn them to live trying to earn his love. You see, pride-fueled greed always reduces people in our eyes to less than humans. They're pawns in our game. They're ways for us to get ahead by using them. And greed regards nothing of value other than our own getting, our own acquiring, our own collecting, and our own accumulating. And greed is only conquered in one way, friends, by grace that grows gratitude and generosity. You see, gratitude is not just about material stuff, and generosity is not just about money. Both are about the grace of God growing, a God-honoring view of all things, of people, of money, of material things. And greed and grace will never coexist. One will always purge the other. Greed burns, but grace builds and blesses by gratitude and by generosity. Grace can never be received as long as earning remains. And so the whole idea of naming your wages from which this whole passage flows from one conversation and all the harm and all the destruction, all the brokenness and all the bruising come from this, striving after and earning a wage that makes Jacob feel like he got what he was due. Never happens. Friends, 
earning always opposes and deters grace in your life. Especially when you consider where you are with God. Grace is never earned, but it only comes by faith through repentance and receiving. But listen to me, it always comes to the one who believes in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. God's grace always produces gratitude and generosity. That one may pursue a closer presence of Jesus. Sin perverts God's blessing. But by grace God produces Christ-likeness in us when by faith we trust to obey him. Here's the true encouragement I want you to walk away with as we conclude. God is far more committed to our redemption than we are. Far more committed to our redemption than we are. Jacob was not a man God chose to randomly bless because God does nothing randomly but one through whom he would bless all the families of the earth. And because of Jesus, your blessing is not random from God. It's purposed, it's intentional to bring him glory. And so I stop with this question. Is there any area in your life where God's blessing is being skewed by sin's work? And as the Lord convicts you of that today by His Spirit, He's inviting you to turn, to learn contentment, to pursue humility, to be filled with gratitude and generosity for the things that He is doing in you and wants to do through you. Let's pray.